Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your love. Thank you so much for your word. And as we come here with our different stories and backgrounds and situations, Lord, would we see your faithfulness? Would we see your graciousness and your love despite our circumstance that you would be made most famous, that our lives would be transformed and that we can forgive because you've first forgiven us. And as we read and teach from Genesis 33 and 34, open our hearts, Father. Help us to understand what you're doing in this world. For your glory and for our joy, we pray. Amen. So we're reading from Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there should be uh, something that looks like this around you. This is a gift from the Northern Collective to you. If you just like to listen, that's okay as well. We're going to have it uh, shown on the screen. And if you have an app or whatever it may be, again, we're in Genesis 33 and 34. And if you're following with us in these Bibles, it is on page 28. Chapter 33 begins on page 28. And so we've been going through this book, Genesis. It's the first book of the Bible, and it lays a lot of foundations for the rest of the Bible. And it lays a lot of foundation for how we are to live our lives. But as we've continued to read, Genesis is a 50-chapter book. We're in chapters 33 and 34. We've just seen the picture of a very good, loving God with people who continue to rebel generation after generation after generation. So when we think a hero comes along, for example, there's a man named Abraham. We think he's the hero, that he's going to change everything around, and he fails. And then we think, okay, this next character, Isaac, he's going to be the one to change the world. He's going to be the one to save the day. Yet he fails. So we continue to see that, and that bleeds into our generation now, that bleeds into our situation today, that we continue to fail day after day because our hearts are corrupt, because we are full of sin, which we've inherited. We are cursed. We're under this curse, and we continue to fail. We disappoint. And this is the picture. There's this good God, and there's this broken and sinful humanity. So many poor choices. We're seeing so many poor choices. I've, ha- I've committed a lot of poor choices. I know you have. We don't have to share any of that right now. But if we're honest, we, we continue to fail God. And that's an expression of a broken, bleeding heart that is tainted and cursed with sin. That is our situation. Yet there's this good God. There's this amazing God. And this is where Genesis, this is the trajectory. God is restoring humanity. Restoring it to the way that it should be, where people walk hand in hand with God. We speak to God without shame, without guilt, without condemnation. But that's broken. And so here we are in chapter 33, verse 1. Then Jacob looked up, and saw Esau coming with his 400 men. I'm going to pause there for a second. What is happening here? So, if you've been following with us, and if you haven't, I'm just going to give a brief recap. Jacob is brother to Esau. And so in there, in, in 20 years earlier, Jacob and Esau lived at home. But Jacob, he cheated his brother Esau of something called a birthright, which is... Uh, uh, a prestigious kind of standing within your family as the firstborn. Uh, he stole something called a blessing, 
from his father, which, he was, uh, which his brother Esau was supposed to inherit, but Jacob stole it. So Esau is pretty upset. And Esau wants to kill Jacob. This is 20 years ago in this story. Esau wants to kill Jacob, but Jacob's mom says, you need to run. You need to get out of here, and maybe your brother will calm down. And when he calms down, you can come back. So Jacob kind of builds this life. He gets married. He has children. He gets livestock. And he's now traveling. And he gets word that his brother, he might encounter his brother Esau 20 years later. Jacob's thinking, huh, maybe he's chilled out. Maybe he's, uh, maybe he's chill out. Maybe he's not. Just in case he hasn't, I'm going to give him a bunch of animals. I'm going to give him a bunch of uh, things. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say a lot of nice things about him, and maybe he'll be my friend. And so now they're at this encounter. So last week we picked up where murderous Esau is now going to meet Jacob, and this is where they meet. Then Jacob looked up, and he thought, okay, my brother's going to be there. It's going to be great. But it doesn't seem so great, because now he has an army of 400 men. That's not, that's not a really good welcoming committee. So that's where we are right now. Because all Jacob knew was his brother was planning to kill him. 20 years have passed, maybe he's chilled out. We don't know. So now we continue. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and his two servants, uh, servant wives. So this is his family. He put the servant wives and their children at the front so what he's doing, he's sending, he's sending like troops of people to give him gifts and to go before him. Uh, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last. Then Jacob went on ahead. As he approached his brother, he bowed to the ground seven times before him. Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. And they both wept. So here's Jacob thinking, okay, my brother wants to kill me. I'm just going to say a lot of nice things. And um, maybe if I just send enough people ahead of me, like his family, you see what he's doing there? He's sending his family first. He's like, you guys go ahead. You go first. You go see Esau. I'll, I'll watch the back. I'll send my kids. I'll send my, my family. I'll send everybody else. And I'll just, I'll just chill out in the back. And then maybe it'll all be good by this. So he's, he's, he's a coward. He's a coward at this point. And then, so, and then as he finally approached Esau, what does he do? He bows down to him seven times. Oh, brother, you're so great. You're so, you're so amazing. Please don't kill me. Please don't kill me. That's not in there. But that's probably what he's thinking because his brother just wants to kill him. But what happens? He doesn't, Esau does not murder him. He embraces him. He hugs him. He kisses him. And they both wept. We continue in verse 5. Then Esau looked at the women and children and asked, Who are these people with you? These are the children God has graciously given to me, your servant, Jacob. Your servant, Jacob replied. Then the servant wives came forward with their children, bowed before him. Next came Leah with her children, and they bowed before him. Finally, Joseph and Rachel came forward and bowed before him. And what are all these flocks and herds I met as I came? Esau asked. Jacob replied, They are a gift, my lord to ensure your friendship. My brother, I have plenty, Esau answered. Keep what you have for yourself. But Jacob insisted, No, if I have found favor with you, please accept this gift from me. And what a relief to see your friendly smile, 
It is like seeing the face of God. Please take this gift I have brought you. For God has been very gracious to me. I have more than enough. And because Jacob insisted, Esau finally accepted the gift. You might see this in restaurants. You know, you're, you're, you're with people and they're both wanting to pay the bill. Like, no, you, you t- no, I'll take it. You don't worry about it. And they're like, no, I take it. In, uh, in Chinese culture, it's very much like that. You, you don't split the bill. There's this fake battle happening. Like, no, I insist. But in your head, you're like, please pay for this. <laughs> When I went to Hong Kong and we went to, I went with my family to this very fancy uh, seafood restaurant, world renowned, and you get fresh fish and crabs and I love seafood and Chinese love seafood. And we're sitting at this restaurant, my family of like, you know, there's 20 cousins and aunts and uncles and probably strangers that I don't even know, they're just at the table and we're feasting and the, the, the bill finally comes. And this is my favorite part. You know, the food is great. I love the food. If you know me, I love, I love food as long as it's not super spicy. Enjoy the food and sitting back. And I know I, the, it's the, there's going to be two, two men, typically. They're going to fight over this bill. And so the bill comes. I have a look at it. And it comes to about 16,000 um, uh, Hong Kong dollars, so which is about, about 2,500 um, Canadian dollars. The bill is 2,500 dollars. So I was like, nope, I'm not paying that. Just let that keep going. <clears throat> and then uh, my cousin's boyfriend, who's, he's new to the family. He wants to make an impression. He takes the bill. And then my uncle's like, no, no, young man. <laughs> I insist. And then there's this fight. And this is my favorite part because you're just watching them go back and forth. No, I insist. Take it. Take it. Um, eventually, the, the very rich uh, boyfriend of my cousin paid for it. But this is kind of what's going on here. Jacob sent Esau over 500 different kinds of animals. And Esau saying, no, 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 I, no, I don't need that. No, you keep it. He's like, no, no, you take I insist you take it. So that's kind of what's going on here. It's cultural, and they have this kind of, it's kind of a nice fight, you know. There's no murdering happening here, so it's good. Uh, we continue in verse 12. Well, Esau said, Let, let's be going. I will lead the way. But Jacob replied, you can see, my Lord, that some of the children are very young, and the flocks and herds have their young too. If they're driven too hard, even for a day, all the animals could die. Please, my Lord, go ahead of your servant. We will follow slowly, at a pace that is comfortable for the livestock and the children. I will meet you at Seir, this place called Seir. All right, Esau said, but at least let me assign some of my men to guide and protect you. Jacob responded, that's not necessary. It's enough that you've received me warmly, my Lord. So Esau turned around and started back to Seir that same day. Jacob, on the other hand, traveled on to Succoth. There he built himself a house and made shelters for his livestock. This is why the place is named Succoth, which means shelters. So if you've been following us in Genesis, this is like a... And if you haven't read the Bible before, this is a pretty intense encounter. Like, is there going to be a huge, epic fight between Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker? You're like, I want to see. And it's just like, hugs. And you're like, oh, well, that's kind of cool. So it's kind of anticlimactic. Because after this extensive preparation, Jacob is a, is a planner. He's a schemer. He's a deceiver. So he's, he has all these plans. And then it just, it didn't matter what he did. 
But this is where the meaning of the text, this is where the meaning of this chapter comes. Because God said, Jacob, you need to go to the promised land, to this land where I'm going to send you. You need to go there. And I will protect you. I've protected you ever since. I'm going to protect you when you get there. But really, Jacob didn't trust God. That's why he made all these plans. And at this moment where there's the embrace of his brother, it's almost like God's saying, didn't you believe me that I was going to protect you? That you're to go to the promised land? And so Esau is saying, here, Jacob, brother, follow me. You know, there's no Uber, there's no SkyTrain, there's no bus at this time. They're walking with their, their cattle. Esau's saying, come with me. Let's go. Let's walk, to, let's walk to this land. And Jacob knows it's the promised land. But Jacob actually doesn't follow him. And he doesn't choose to go to the promised land. Jacob thought that this meeting with his brother was a huge crisis, but it was just really telling of Jacob's relationship with God and that he really didn't trust God. So in verse 18, later having traveled all the way from Padan Aram, that's where they lived previously, Jacob arrived safely at the town of Shechem in the land of Canaan. There he set up camp outside the town. Jacob bought the plot of land where he camped from the family of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of silver. And there he built an altar and named it El Elohe Israel, meaning God, the God of Israel. So apparently Jacob didn't fully trust Esau, Fair enough. His brother wanted to murder him and, he, and all of a sudden his brother's like, hey, chum, who are these people? Where'd you get this cattle? And he's probably got like one eyebrow up and one eyebrow down. Like, oh, I don't trust you, bro. Like, I, I'm not, no, I don't dig this. But he also didn't trust God. And, and that's the important point of this chapter. Because he had no intention of following Esau to Seir. He had no intention of going there. Because God directed Jacob to return to your land of origin. We read that in chapter 31. This is the promised land. But Jacob stopped just outside of the border of that land in a place called Shechem. So if God, in his words, calls Jacob to do one thing, but you do another, how disobedient is that? Is it full disobedience, half disobedience, or just... Just nothing. Think about it this way. If you have kids and you're like, hey, like for example, I went to McDonald's this morning and I told my one daughter, you can go down the slide one more time. Goes down the slide one more time. You know, I'm doing something else, probably enjoying my delicious hash brown. And she goes up the slide another time and comes down and says, and I said, I, I said one time. And she's like, well, I only did it one, I only did it one time. No, that's full disobedience. Like, you didn't, you didn't listen to me. It doesn't matter how trivial the thing is. Partial disobedience is full disobedience. So Jacob right here is being disobedient to God and his promise. He just went to the border, just, just 20 miles where he was supposed to go. So it doesn't matter how we rationalize or what kind of excuses we make if we read this Bible and it says to do one thing, 
and we do another, it's full, it's full disobedience. But he built this altar. He built this thing to worship God there. And he named it, oh God, God of Israel in Shechem. He built this altar there. Oh, isn't that good enough? Like, look, this guy's doing the Lord's work. But he's disobedient. He's using God as an excuse to sin. He's using God as an excuse to sin. My friend was telling me when he was working in Guatemala and they're uh, working in, in this ministry and, and, and bringing the good news of Jesus to, to this people, uh, one of his co-workers, which he didn't know previously, but he met in Guatemala, the guy said, he's from the States, he's a I've come here to do Lord's work. And my friend's like, that's great, me too. But the man from the U.S. said, but I left my wife and my kids in America. I've let, like, he divorced them. He left them. Because he said, I am called to do the Lord's work here in Guatemala. So it's an excuse to disobey a former commandment, which is to love your wife, to love your children take care of your family. So Jacob says, oh, I built this altar at Shechem. I'm only 20 miles away from supposed to be, but that's full disobedience. Jacob's sinful lack of obedience to God contradicted this incredible encounter that he, he had with God just chapters earlier. That there's this mysterious situation that took place where, where Jacob when he was alone at night, this, this being came, which we later find out is God, wrestles with Jacob, and, and this person is wrestling and touches Jacob's hip and dislocates his hip and renames him Israel. And the significance of Israel in the scripture cannot be overstated. There's over 2,400 mentions of Israel in the Bible. Jacob becomes the nation of Israel. And that's where the entire Bible is going to expound and explain is Israel's story with God and all the people that come from it. So what happened to that guy? He had this amazing encounter. And now here he was. He's in his old life, being a schemer, a deceiver. And he's also Israel. He's a walking self-contradiction like so many of us can be, like I can be. I can be one way here at church. And you think, oh, Harrison's so great. I know many of you think that. Thank you for sending me those texts. Oh, Harrison's so great. Look at him at church preaching the word of God. Surely, surely he talks to his kids properly. Surely his marriage is going well. Surely he doesn't struggle with money. Surely he doesn't struggle with looking at women the wrong way. Surely he doesn't do that. No, I'm a self I'm a walking self-contradiction because our old selves, our old desires, and my desires are not the same as yours, but we tend to go back to the old ways. Do we not? To lie and deceive and put on a good face. I am Israel. Ho, ho, ho. Oh, that's Santa. But he's also Jacob, very human, like us. When we get hungry, when we get angry, we resort to our old ways. And the cost of Jacob's sinful disobedience 
will be nothing short of a disaster for him and his entire family, which we're going to read about in, in chapter 34 in a second. In this next chapter, in chapter 34, is where we're going to see the stories of rape, moral abandonment, deceitfulness, and genocide. Yet, in all of this sinfulness, yet in all of this sinfulness, God's faithfulness is still at work. He's been with Jacob amidst his sin and his rebellion. God is with him in Shechem, even though he's fully disobeyed God. And in the event we're about to read, God has allowed Jacob to experience this appalling weight of his sinfulness so that Jacob would return to his call. God has allowed Jacob to experience this so that he would return to his call. We all know there's a, there's a consequence to everything that we do. There's a physical consequence to what we do. What we eat, how much we exercise, or how much we don't, there's, there's just a natural consequence, natural consequence to that. There's also a spiritual consequence to what we do. And so God is just allowing the consequences of his sin to play out. And we'll see that God is faithful, and he will always be faithful, despite humanity's sin. So now we're in 34, verse 1. One day Dinah, the daughter of Jacob and Leah, went to visit some of the young women who lived in the area. But when the local prince Shechem, son of Hamor the Hivite, saw Dinah, he seized her and raped her. But then he fell in love with her, and he tried to win her affection with tender words. So Jacob has 13 kids, 12 sons and one daughter, Dinah. And so here in Shechem, young Dinah, she was pushing the edges of, of what she should be doing. It says, and she went to visit some of the young women who lived in the area. In the ancient culture, if you're a girl who is of an age to be married, uh, you weren't allowed to go out without a chaperone. But here she was. She went out, she left by herself, and she went to go visit these other young women. And so in the Hebrew, which is the original language of this text, when it says in verse 1, went to, it, it bears a sense of indecency. There's some, it's not so, so innocent. It wasn't like she was going for a walk. But I'm not trying to victim blame Dinah here. Dinah was raped by a local prince named Shechem. And it was aggravated. When you see the three verbs in verse 2, it says he saw her, he seized her, and then he raped her. There's a progression here. This is the sinfulness of humanity. The sinfulness of humanity is disgusting and it is devastating. Now, if you or someone you know has been raped, you must know that it is not your fault. You do not consent to that. There's healing there. I'm not saying we as a church have the answers, but if you would ever want to discuss that, we can direct you to resources and to people to help you in your healing journey. 
That is, it is not your fault. It does not change your identity. You are made in the image of God. You have full worth. What happened here to Dinah is not her fault. It is the fault of a sinful man, of sinful people. Verse 4. He said to his father, Hamor, get me this girl. I want to marry her. Now surely, surely the hero of the story, Jacob, Jacob will save his daughter and save the day, right? Jacob's going to come to his daughter's rescue. He will make things right in this devastating situation. And sadly, we are wrong. Jacob's daughter was just raped, but we are further shocked by Jacob's silence. Verse 5, Soon Jacob heard that Shechem had defiled his daughter Dinah, but since his sons were out in the fields herding his livestock, he said nothing until they returned. Hamor, Shechem's father, came to discuss the matter with Jacob. So the sad, sinful truth here is that Jacob never really cared for the children of his wife Leah. And his attitude trickled down to her daughter and six sons. This is a messed up situation. Jacob has two wives. There's Rachel and there's Leah. He loved Rachel and her kids, but didn't have the same attitude towards Leah's kids. And this is not a, this is not a place in the Bible where we're saying, hey, polygamy is a good thing. No, God in the beginning in Genesis chapter 2 said, marriage is between one man and one woman. So what's happening here is just sinfulness. But God works and is faithful amidst that. So when the first readers are listening to this account, they would have understood that because Jacob had become Israel, the rape of his daughter was a crime against Israel as a people, and they're seeing that the relationship of Israel to God had been ignored and abused. The primary characters we read about in Genesis and actually throughout the entire Bible are deeply flawed, broken, fickle, finite, flaky, foolish. What is another F? No, 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 no. <laughs> no, no, no. We're just going to move on here. But people are broken, deeply flawed, prone to sin. And tragically, Jacob, who is the central character of the story, is deeply flawed. He did not stand up for his daughter, nor did he stand up for his God. He didn't stand up for his, his daughter, nor his God. Verse 7. Meanwhile, Jacob's sons had come in from the field. As soon as they heard what had happened, they were shocked and furious that their sister had been raped. Shechem had done a disgraceful thing against Jacob's family, something that should never be done. Hamer tried to speak with Jacob and his sons. My son Shechem is truly in love with your daughter, he said. Please let him marry her. In fact, let's arrange other marriages too. You give us your daughters for our sons and we will give you our daughters for your sons and you may live amongst us. The land is open to you. Settle here and trade with us and feel free to buy property in the area. Then Shechem himself spoke to Dinah's father and brothers. Please be kind to me and let me marry her, he begged. I will give you whatever you ask, no matter what dowry or gift you demand. I will gladly pay it. 
Just give me the girl as my wife. But since Shechem had defiled their sister Dinah, Jacob's sons responded deceitfully to Shechem and his father, Hamor. They said to them, We couldn't possibly allow this, because you're not circumcised. It would be a disgrace for a sister to marry a man like you. But here's a solution. If every man among you will be circumcised like we are, then we will give you our daughters and we'll take your daughters for ourselves. We will live among you and become one people. But if you don't agree to be circumcised, we will take her and be on our way. Now the practice of circumcision, it was introduced in Genesis chapter 17. God introduced it in Genesis chapter 17, uh, verses 9 to 14. And those who were circumcised, they identified themselves with one of the first uh, main characters in the Bible, Abraham. So if those who were circumcised would identify themselves with Abraham as their father. So you would enter into this promised family, this covenant family through membership. Circumcision was required. And circumcision at this point was intended by God to bring divine blessing. So circumcision was for a time. This is not something we ask now. I will not be asking this about my daughters if there is a suitor. Circumcision was Israel's, though at this point, Israel's most cherished symbol of faith. It was a very sacred practice. Verse 18, Hamor and his son Shechem agreed to the proposal. Shechem wasted no time in acting on this request, for he wanted Jacob's daughter desperately. Shechem was a highly respected member of his family, and he went with his father Hamor to present this proposal to the leaders at the town gate. These men are our friends, they said. Let's, let's invite them to live here among us and trade freely. Look, the land is large enough to hold them. We can take their daughters as wives and let them marry ours, but they will consider staying here and becoming one people with us only if all of our men are circumcised just as they are. But if we do this, all their livestock and possessions will eventually be ours. Come, let's agree to their terms and let them settle here among us. So all the men in town, council agreed with Hamor and Shechem, and every male in the town was circumcised. So here we have love-struck Shechem giving this outrageous plea pleading with the whole town, you should all get circumcised. Hooray! <laughs> Not hooray. You have love-struck Shechem, who is thinking nothing about anything except Dinah. So the, so the deal was struck. But Jacob's sons were not thinking of anything but revenge. And they were certainly not thinking about God. Shechem only wanted Dinah, and Jacob's sons only wanted revenge. And as we continue in verse 25, But three days later, when their wounds were still sore, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, who were Dinah's full brothers, took their swords and entered the town without opposition. Then they slaughtered every male there, including Hamor and his son Shechem. They killed them with their swords, then took Dinah from Shechem's house and returned to their camp. Meanwhile, the rest of Jacob's sons arrived, finding the men slaughtered. They plundered the town because their sister had been defiled there. They seized all the flocks and herds and donkeys, everything they could lay their hands on, both inside the town and outside in the fields. They looted all their wealth and plundered their houses. They also took their little children and wives and led them away as captives. 
the sacred symbol of circumcision was violated, was violated so Simeon and Levi could use it as a tool for death and destruction. Their goal was genocide. Their goal was genocide. And when you read this story, it should, it should shock you. It should shock us. And it should shock those who were reading it and listening to it at the time. Because there was an ancient law that was lo- known as Lex Talionis. Lex Talionis is better understood as eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. If you do this one thing, then we'll, we'll exact up to equal repercussion. So you break my lamp, you, you pay for the lamp, or I get to break your lamp. Lex talionis, eye for an eye. And that was, that was like a, it was like a cap, it was like a governor. Because it's not like, hey, you killed my goldfish, I'm going to kill your sheep. Like, oh, you killed my sheep, I'm going to burn your house down. Oh, you burn my house down, I'm going to burn your whole family. You, hurt, you burn my family, I'm going to destroy the universe. But Lex Talionis was like, no, like, you got to stop that. There has to be a cap. And so the rape of Dinah is horrific. This goes over and above and exceeds Lex Talionis and that ancient law. There was no equity here. It was only exponential revenge. There was no acknowledgement of God. Just two furious brothers seeking revenge through deception. Deception. They lied. They used the circumcision as a lie. And deception is the repeated family sin of Jacob. The murderous deceit of Jacob's sons was rooted in how his dad dealt with things in his own deceitful ways. Why should they be concerned about deceiving the people of Shechem when Jacob deceived so many people before. The most recent thing being, hey, Esau's like, hey, let's be buddy buddies. Our, our, our relationship here is reconciled. Follow me to see her. And Jacob's like, yeah, I'll follow you. Not. And so the sons see that. Like father, like son. There's this deceitfulness that they saw. Verse 30, afterward, Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have ruined me. You've made me stink among all the people of this land, among all the Canaanites and Perizzites. We're so few that they will join forces and crush us. I will be ruined. My entire household will be wiped out. At first reading, you wouldn't notice anything here, but Jacob is pathetic here. And he's pathetic for what he didn't say. He did not condemn the massacre. Simeon and Levi, what are you doing? Something like that. Neither did he condemn them for breaking the law of Lex Talionis. He did not mention that the sons violated the contract they had with Shechem. He didn't say anything about circumcision being violated. And there wasn't a word of concern that's recorded about the rape of Dinah. None of that. What was his only concern? What was his only concern? He was only concerned about his own survival, to save his own skin, and by association, his family. Jacob is only thinking about one thing. This makes me look bad. This makes me look bad. Our sin 
that you and I have inherited. It only cares about us. Sin is selfish. Sin is sickness. Sin is stupid. And sin is insane. It only cares about us. And that's where Jacob is. He's like, this is going to make me look so bad. And the chapter closes in verse 31. But why should we let him treat our sister like a prostitute? They retorted angrily. Simeon and Levi respond to their father. Hey, we took the moral high ground here. They raped our sister. This was only right. This, this genocide, this was the moral high ground. And Jacob was silenced. And the whole situation is Jacob's fault. That's not to take away what Simeon and Levi did or what Shechem did. But why did this all happen? He didn't go and obey and go to the promised land like he was supposed to. It was almost obedience. But it was simply disobedience. If Jacob had gone to Bethel in full obedience, none of this would have happened. None of this would have happened. The rape, the ugliness, the genocide, the disgrace were all due to Jacob's disobedience. And the sinfulness of humanity is alive and well today. We see it. We see it in our own families. We see it in the news, if you can stomach it. We, we hear it on the radio. It's in our city. And we know Yukon's hurting. Don't we? That's, that's the curse of sin that is in our blood, that is in our hearts. So what happened to the Jacob? We read a few chapters earlier. The one who triumphed over adversity despite his weakness. The one who wrestled with God and became Israel. Where's the hero? Where's the hero? As you read the Bible, as you go through it, from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, there's this refrain, there's this chorus of, this person is going to make it all right. And when they finally come, they fail. And then the next generation comes. Maybe this person will come and they will save us and they fail. And maybe these kings will come and they'll save us. No, they won't and they don't. So there's this longing in the original readers and as we read it, for a king, for a leader, for someone to save us. It's not Abraham. It's not Isaac. It's not Jacob. It's not any of his sons. It's the faithfulness of God. We shouldn't elevate characters in the Bible more than the Bible describes them. The Bible is full of corrupt, broken men and broken women, and we're longing for a hero who rules with justice, who rules with liberty, who rules with love, who rules with patience, somebody that will save us. And all these characters fail us. There's only one hero in all of Scripture. And it is a descendant of Jacob. It is a descendant of Isaac and Abraham. It is the promised king that God promised in the beginning. And the only hero in all of Scripture 
is Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, who 2,000 years ago came and bore our sin, who kept the law perfectly, who followed God perfectly, who, as the writer of a book called Corinthians wrote, in chapter 5, in 2 Corinthians, verse 21, it says, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. He who knew no sin became sin, became our ugliness, became our shame, that we might become His innocence, His righteousness. And the wrath and the fury and the full judgment that we deserved was poured on the head of Jesus Christ and we, by faith alone, receive His innocence. That is the gospel. It is salvation, the rescue from our sin, the presence, the power, the penalty of it is poured on Jesus Christ. This should eliminate any desire for us to have revenge or seek vengeance or getting even or holding grudges that we can lay it all at the feet of Jesus who 2,000 years ago died for us, paid for our sin, three days later rose from the grave to show that there is no victory in hell, that death has no hold on us, and that the context of the whole Bible is Jesus Christ himself. That is the context of all of Scripture. So Jacob's only hope, and our only hope, it lays in the ultimate son of Jacob, the one who would come, the ultimate Israel, Christ the Savior, who bore the wrath of God for our sin, turning it away from all who would believe. Our sin runs so deep, but God's grace is deeper still. So we go to that fountain, which is limitless, and we plead to God to enter our lives and transform it for His glory and our joy. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for being faithful. Thank you so much for loving us despite our mess and our ugliness. Thank you that Jesus Christ paid it all and that you alone are worthy and that you alone are faithful. And we give you praise. In your name we pray. Amen.